I haven't seen those in years. It's wonderful. So, so good to get into the Word today. We are in Luke chapter 19 and 20 today. Chapter 19 and 20. I may have made some of you nervous when I said it was, it's all about image. What am I going to tell the kids? It's all about image. It really is. That's what we're going to see today. We're going to do... We're going to go through chapters 19 and 20 forward and backwards. No, really, we are. Actually, I should go forward and backwards, shouldn't I? That probably confused us. We're going to go through. We're going to take a quick tour through, and that's going to redirect us to go backwards and unpack and, and get a better look at what happened in light of the, the uh, two chapters as a whole. So let me try to do that relatively well, efficiently, I guess, is, would be a good way to describe it. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, we'll be on page 878, or we'll start there. We're in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, and it starts with an interesting account of an interesting man. Here is Jesus. This is the uh, culmination of his journey from, through the area of what's called Perea, from Galilee down through the region of Perea to Jerusalem, uh, approaching his final week. So he's now come to Jericho. At Jericho, he's going to take a right-hand turn. He's going to go through the mountain passes up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is higher in elevation than Jericho down in the Jordan Valley. And he entered Jericho in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. And he's passing through, and there's a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. We've already had the story of a rich man. Last chapter, there was a rich man, and it was impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven by himself, on his own merits, paying his own way. So there's another rich man now, and he's the chief tax collector. He's a powerful man. He's the head of the IRS in Jericho, and Jericho is a gateway city. From the Jordan Plains and the, and the Eastern Plains across the Jordan, this was, this was the, 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 lead cent, the lead city in the area. So there were sure to be lots of agriculture, lots of, prosper, lots of taxes to be raised, and they all funnel through this guy named Zacchaeus. He's not, a, he's not a big man. He's not a tall man, but he's a big man around Jericho. He's, he's a little guy. He's a short guy, but he's somebody. He's a chief tax collector. He was seeking to see Jesus. Jesus is coming through. He's on his way through, but on account of the crowd, Zacchaeus could not see him because he was he's just a short guy. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he stopped, he looked up, he said, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus invites himself over to stay at Zacchaeus. Now, I don't know if he was just staying over for lunch. I don't know if he was spending the night, but certainly there's a, there's a dinner or something going on. And so he hurried and came down and he received him joyfully. And when others saw it, oh, the Pharisees are following along. They're watching. They're looking for an opportunity. They're looking for a way to trap him and to catch Jesus in something that they can use against him. And they see this and they grumble again. They say, look, he's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. We know this guy. We know that he's made his money off of overtaxing people. He charges more than he should, and he keeps the difference, only sends what he has to to Rome and everything else he keeps for himself. That's how tax collectors functioned. And yet in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, 
out. We knew who he was talking about. The Lord is repeated because it's emphasized that Zacchaeus himself addresses Jesus not merely as the Christ, not merely even as Savior, but as Lord. He addresses him as having authority and Zacchaeus, a big man around Jericho, in submission to him. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who were lost. It's an interesting account of an interesting man. Today, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. He says that in response to Zacchaeus' faith. And Zacchaeus' faith is evidenced by what he does. Jesus didn't tell him. He didn't ask Jesus and Jesus tell him, you have to sell everything in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. No. That was the earlier incident. But in this case, Zacchaeus, in recognition of who Jesus is and who he is, Zacchaeus says, he volunteers, I will. And not only that, he says, I am a sinner. He acknowledges his sin by saying that he's going to pay restitution. And when he does that, he says he's going to pay restitution to the greatest extent that the law could require. For the worst of fraud and cheating, the highest percentage that could be repaid, it's the same, it's the same decree that King David um, actually, actually pronounced against himself when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And when Nathan, after Nathan tells a story about a man who stole a sheep, and he's going to have to replace that fourfold. And then Nathan says, you're the man. You're the one. Well, that's the kind of guilt that Zacchaeus admits upon himself. He says, I'm the guilty one. I'm the man. I will repay the restitution that I can because he receives Jesus for who he is. So today, salvation has come to this house, and yet, salvation has been delayed or deferred in a sense. Next thing that comes along in chapter 19, verse 11, there's a parable that Jesus tells because as he's coming near to Jerusalem, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so there's a delay. He, 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 he tells them a story to help them understand the delay that is going to be happening. And what men like Zacchaeus will do in the meantime. He tells a story about a nobleman who goes away into a far country to receive a kingdom, to be appointed as king. And if, if Rome set you in, in charge of a certain area, then you go to Rome and you receive the kingship and then you return. And your subjects hopefully will all then be in submission to you. Well, it didn't always work out quite so nice. Sometimes the citizens of the area, particularly in Judea, would be against the person who's been appointed to be their king or their ruler. And that happened. And Jesus is kind of alluding to one of those, uh, one of those recent occurrences with this story. He's, a nobleman goes away, but while he goes away, he, he gives a certain amount, the same amount to each of ten servants to use in his absence. And then to invest for him and to, to increase and multiply his, his influence and his, and his, his fruitfulness. And then he's going to come again, and he's going to reward those servants, and also he's going to deal then with the rebels who did not want him to be king at all. So he tells this tale, that this parable of the nobleman. And it illustrates a couple of points. First of all, there's to be faithfulness while he's away, because he's going to be away, but he's going to come again. And when he comes again, that's when he will establish his kingdom and deal with anybody who has rebelled against him. Okay, well, he... 
When he tells that story, they get what's going on. And from there, Jesus moves on to Jerusalem. Though he's going away, though the kingdom is delayed, that could suggest that Jesus is not in charge. And this is important for us. Because while we wait, we need to know that our Lord is still Lord. Our Lord still is in charge. What happens on his way into Jerusalem? He stops outside Bethany a little bit before then, and he tells his disciples about a colt that is tied somewhere. Well, he hasn't seen this colt. He hasn't seen this house. And yet, he tells them, go there and get this colt and bring it back. It's been months since he's been this way. Was the colt there then and is still there now? No, our Lord is able to look ahead. He knows what's ahead. He's demonstrating his sovereignty that the crowd themselves declare when he rides in on that colt and they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They recognize who he is. We need to recognize who he is. Our Lord knows what's ahead. Our Lord, Lord knows the difficulties. He, know how he, he, know, he knows how he's going to meet them. So there's the cult. He, he, he arrives into the city. He goes to the temple. He cleanses the temple. And that's about all the authorities can take. They say, well, wait, wait, wait. Who do you think you are? On what authority do you do these things? The end of, the end of, of, uh, of Luke chapter 19, we get into 20. And so in chapter 20, they say in verse, uh, let me see if I can read it with my new glasses. It's verse 2. Tell us by what authority do you do these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? And he says, well, why do you ask? Well, he kind of says it that way. He actually says, uh, well, I'll ask you a question, and you answer my question, then I'll answer yours. Because I want to find out, do you really want to know? Do you really want to know on whose authority he does these things? He said, well, tell me about John the Baptist. Who do you think John the Baptist was? What authority do you think John the Baptist had? Oh, now we got a problem. Hmm. If we say that John the Baptist was a prophet sent from God, then he's going to say, why didn't you listen to John the Baptist? Because they didn't. John the Baptist told them about Jesus. So they can't go there. But if they say, well, we don't think John the Baptist was a prophet, and the people are going to stone them because all the people love John the Baptist. They're convinced that John the Baptist was a prophet and John pointed to Jesus. Oh, we don't know. Well, he says, then neither will I tell you because you don't want to know. That was the point. And so then he tells another parable. And this one I want to read to us in verse 9 of Luke chapter 20. He, tell, he told, told the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. And let it out to tenants. And he went to another country for a long time. Sound familiar? The same theme. He, he, he gets it started. He, he's created something. He goes away for a time. Okay? When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. This, is, this echoes all the way back to Isaiah chapter 5. And Isaiah tells the story of the vineyard that God made and God created. God walled it in, fenced it, planted the vine, and expected good fruit and found sour grapes. So then, time comes and he sends a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and send him away empty-handed. He's referring to the prophets. He sent another servant, other prophet, and they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Perhaps that's Jeremiah. He sent a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. 
Perhaps they will respect him. Perhaps they will hear him. It's pretty obvious who the parable is all about, isn't it? But when the tenants saw him, they said to himself, this is the heir. Let us kill. This is the one that the vineyard belongs to. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours instead. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. What were they smoking? Of course that's what he would do. The scribes and the chief priests then sought to lay hands on him, verse 19, that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them. The parable of the vineyard is a parable against the leadership who have resisted God. They have resisted God's messengers from the prophets all the way down to John the Baptist. And now God has sent his own son and they have resisted him too. In fact, they're going to kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. And they think when they do that, what? God's going to give in and give the vineyard, give the kingdom to them instead. You see, this is about authority and accountability. The set-up question to this parable is, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus is, is saying, by what authority do you resist me? The greatest issue preventing people from believing in Christ is that they don't want to be accountable to him. We live in a strange cultural time where it's, it's a mix of a libertarian democracy where, where people want to do whatever they want to do on somebody else's dime or dollar or Daenerys. Most atheists are not so much foolish as insincere. What do I mean by that? Well, Proverbs says the fool or the unhinged one, the person that doesn't have it all together, says in his heart, sincerely, there is no God. Most atheists are not sincerely atheists. They are, I wish it were so, atheists. They want to be atheists. They, they, it's like the person that says, I'm convinced there is not a God because the things that I see can, do not agree with the God that I know. And wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. So, so we redefine God according to our terms and then evaluate the situation accordingly. But they're not so much a fool as insincere. It's not that they sincerely believe there is no God. They wish that there was not because we don't want a God that we are going to be accountable to. So then, here you have the wicked tenants. They, they, they are the leaders. They say, let's kill the son. We'll take the kingdom. We'll make it for ourselves. They recognize the parable is about them. What are they going to do about it? There's a power play. How are we going to grab hold of this thing? How are we going to undermine Jesus and take his vineyard, take his kingdom? That's what's going on. And so they decide we'll play gotcha. Do you really want to play gotcha with God? What do I mean, play gotcha? Well, it's kind of like when the media asks a conservative politician, do you believe in evolution? Do they really care if he does? No, they don't care. They don't like him anyway. They don't care, but if he says, yes, I believe in evolution, well, then he's going to lose support from this side of his, uh, of his, of his supporters who, who believe the Bible and believe that God created the heavens and the earth and us in his image. 
If he says, no, I don't believe in evolution, then, the, then he's going to lose the support of, of, the, of, the, of the non-evangelical side of his support, the, the conservative establishment, who, who don't want to be lumped together with those primitive, old-fashioned, Bible-believing bunch. And so either way, he's going to lose half of his support, right? It's a, it's a gotcha question. There's no win. Well, they decide to play gotcha with the Son of God. And the first question they ask is the one I, when I talk to the kids about. Should we pay the tribute tax to Caesar? Nobody liked paying taxes. To, they're not so different from us, are they? Nobody liked to pay taxes. And so what's Jesus going to say? If he says, absolutely, you should pay your taxes, he's going to lose the people, just like that. If he says, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes, Rome is going to brand him as an insurrectionist, or as a rebel, and Rome's going to take care of him, and problem solved. You see, either way, it's a no-win for Jesus, right? He says, well, whose image is on it? I gave you an image of the coin, the coin, the Daenerys. It's in your notes. as an image of the coin, and the image of the coin, or, 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 or the coin has an image of Caesar. In fact, on the, on the backside of the coin, it has an image of Caesar as Pontius Maximus, the high priest. That's the same, actually, term that's used for the pope. But I'm not going to digress on that side. But uh, the, um, so Caesar is the high priest. Caesar is the image on this coin. And a good Jew shouldn't even have this coin according to their own law because it had an image of a man on it. That's why they had money changing in the temple, by the way. This is just for free. They had money changing in the temple because you couldn't buy a, a pure sacrifice with a defiled, idolatrous coin. So you had to change your Roman denarius into good Hebrew shekels. And then you could use that to buy an approved sacrifice, which is also overpriced, and they're making money on both accounts. So it was a pretty cool system. Now, the, um, so he asked, well, whose image is on it? Well, see, oh, we're not supposed to. Ah, we'll give to Caesars what is Caesars and give to God what is God's. Well, they come up with another question then. Okay, second question. This one denies the resurrection. In verse, in, 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 in verse 27 of chapter, of chapter 20, they came to him some Sadducees. The Sadducees were Sadducee because they did not believe in resurrection. They said, it's not in the five books of Moses, so we don't believe it. God will reward us for, our, for being good and following his rules in this life. And they felt their high, exalted position in society was because God was rewarding them because they were good. So the Sadducees come and they, they, those who deny there is a resurrection, verse 27, they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, there's a, that's a Leverite marriage, according to the law of Moses, so that the man's family can be perpetuated. Okay, well, let's say that brother dies also, and he marries another brother. And that brother dies, and he marries another brother, and then another brother, and this woman goes through seven brothers. You think about five or six, the brothers would stop marrying her, right? No, no I'm just saying. But it's, an, but, but, but it's an argument to absurdity. It's showing how ridiculous the whole notion is because they say, well, now tell us, in the resurrection, if she's resurrected and all these brothers are resurrected, whose wife is she going to be? Anybody? The first one? The last one? 
They say it's ridiculous, this whole notion of resurrection, because according to the law, we would do this, and yet that can't work in a resurrection. And Jesus answers them. He says, first of all, you misunderstand the resurrection. So sometimes a a question has no good answer because the question has a faulty premise. Their premise was resurrection will be just like life now. Jesus says, no, no, it'll be different. When you're resurrected, you will not be mortal. You will be immortal. The corruptible will put on incorruption. And then there's no need for procreation to continue the family line. God will continue your family line in resurrection because he will continue you into eternity. So we will not have the same marriage, family, parent, children relationships as we have now that are continued in marriage and procreation. I'm not saying that you won't know each other. You will. But we will not have the same relationship. It will not be just like life on earth. Don't assume the future is like the presence. And then he answers them from from the book of Moses. He says that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. Why is the answer from Moses? Because Moses was their authority. He says even Moses shows. Sometimes it's implied. Sometimes we need to assume what the Bible assumes. For instance, the Bible doesn't prove God. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible assumes God. We don't need to go to the Bible to try to prove God. The one who would come to God must, was Hebrew say? Believe that he is. Yeah. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Okay, so he says, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush when he calls the Lord. So he goes back. Let's go back to the beginning of Moses. Let's go back to the call of Moses and the burning bush. And God identifies himself to Moses. And when God declares himself to Moses, who does he say he is? The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Now that, that answer tells us a couple of things. First of all, as I said, um, we assume what the Bible assumes. But also, every word matters. Even the fact that when God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, rather than I was. Because if there is no resurrection, if, if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had ceased to exist once they died, if that's all there is, all she wrote, then God would not say, I am the God of Abraham. He would say, I was the God of Abraham, and I'll be your God too, as long as you've got. That's not what he says. He says, I am Abraham's God, and I am your God. Abraham will continue. It says that uh, every word in the Bible matters, every word. It also tells us that our life is more than the here and now. It tells us that our life will continue into eternity, that this is not all there is, that I don't live and give all that I've got for the here and now because there is something bigger, there is something further. We know that this is finite, that this has limits, and there is a continuing life in the resurrection that does not, that continues. And so what matters more? The finite or the infinite? The temporary or the continuing? So we live in the here that we find ourselves, not merely for here, not merely for now, but into a longer eternity. Okay, so then, 
They ask the question, is there a resurrection? What's behind the resurrection? What's behind the tax issue? What's behind the resurrection issue? It's a matter of authority. If there is no resurrection, this life is all we have. I can scrabble for the best I can get for me in the here and now. And in the end, I'll answer to nobody because in the end, it's over. But if there is a resurrection, and if it's God's resurrection, then it is true that it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. It is true that every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. If there is resurrection, then you and I are accountable to an authority that is above ourselves, an authority that is above humanity. If there is a resurrection, there is God who raises us from the dead, and we will meet him beyond this life. Our accountability to God goes beyond this life. Because there's a resurrection, we are accountable. We might get away with stuff for now, but we will not get away with stuff forever. We're, we're accountable for what we do with Jesus, the Son whom God sends to claim his vineyard. Surprisingly, Zacchaeus, remember little Zacchaeus back at the start? Zacchaeus receives the Son, submits to him, even though the religious leaders who should have seen him, known him better, even though they did not. They didn't receive him because they want to run their lives and others themselves rather than be accountable to God. That takes us back to the coin. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. How do I know what belongs to Caesar's? His image is on it. How do I know what belongs to God? His image is on it. His image is on me. His image is on you. It's all about image. You see, God doesn't want your money. You can give that to Washington. God doesn't want your money. God wants you. If God has you, if God has me, he has everything that we are. He has what we have that he has given us to use for him for his glory. God wants us, not our stuff. Present our bodies a living sacrifice because the son has already presented his body a dying sacrifice, dying for us so that we could live in him. So we back up a little farther, then we go back to the noblemen, the ten servants then. Each of the servants was given one mina, which is, I think it's about 60 denarius, so 60 of those coins. Each servant is giving the same deposit. Each one is to use it wisely and to multiply it. One of them does not use it wisely, does not multiply it, but buries it instead out of sight. If we, if we focus on the image, if the, if the passage is really about the image, then the deposit God has certainly given to every one of us. We don't all have the same money. We all have the same image. We all have the same core humanity, that image within us that tells us that we cannot God die, we cannot deny God. How does the atheist know that there is, no, there is a God? The evidence is within us. The evidence is the image that God has stamped upon us. Why is it that I know some things are right and some things are wrong? Where did that sense of justice come from? Why is it that a lion can run down a gazelle? That a cougar can run down the, gear, the, the deer or the elk that Stan Campbell so badly wanted to shoot and didn't? Why is it that that, that cougar out of season can do that? And that's fine. That's normal. 
One animal can rip another to shreds and eat it up. And yet, we don't do that to one another. It's not right when one person would ruin another, would destroy another just to climb up on top of them for their own ego and their own benefit. That's not right. It shouldn't be that way. We want justice. Where'd that come from? Our sense of right and wrong. Our sense of fairness and justice, even as we rewrite it and adjust it in ways that benefit ourselves. Still, that sense of rightness is a manifestation of the image of God. Without God, there is no absolute morality at all. In evolution, there is no basis of morality. And you should not be surprised if your cat eats your parakeet. Don't say, bad cat, bad cat. That's what cats do. Right? But that's not what we do. That's not what humans should do to one another because we're different. We're made in the very image of God. Every one of these servants, every one of us has the stamp of the image of God upon us. It's all about image, you see? And that image is, is defaced. It's broken, but it's not erased. It's still there. That's why I cannot get away from the testimony of God because the testimony of God is even within me. I know that there is a God. Even if, I, even if I wish there were not. I know that God is. So some used that image wisely and multiplied it, extended its influence. One buried it out of sight as if it wasn't there at all. The bottom line is the parable that the Lord is returning and we will give an answer for what is entrusted to us as well as the rebels who resisted his kingship will be dealt with. But we will give an answer for what has been entrusted to us. And so then, working back to the story, we get back to Zacchaeus. Back to Zacchaeus, back where we started from. Look at the change in Zacchaeus. What has happened? What happened to Zacchaeus? He was the chief tax collector. Though he was small, he was big. He enriched himself on, first of all, he bid for the tax contract. That's how it worked. I'll get Rome this much out of this region. And anything beyond that he got, he could keep for himself. And he was very rich. He'd done well at cheating and defrauding others in order to enrich himself. Zacchaeus had done well. But look at the change of Zacchaeus. What has happened? Forgiveness and restoration to God in Christ has restored Zacchaeus to live in the image of God, to live out the image of God that he was created for. What do I mean? Zacchaeus was greedy and selfish, but God is, gen- is generous and merciful and gracious, and so Zacchaeus, restored by faith in Christ, lives out God's image of grace and of generosity. He gives to the poor. Zacchaeus was an arrogant cheat and a fraud, but God is just and righteous. And so Zacchaeus, restored by Christ as an image bearer, lives out God's justice, identifies himself as the most guiltiest of frauds, and promises restitution to those he has harmed. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but God has made him great. In Zacchaeus we are restored. We see the image and the likeness of God restored in him. God's claim on you is only for this, what he has given you, life and his image. The higher standing he has given us, the greater privilege he has called you, created you to live in, not as an animal, but in his image. 
in his likeness. We are called to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Walk worthy of the calling you're called to. Called to bear his image in a broken world. Christians, believers, God is gracious. That's his image. Give grace to people around you. Tip big at a restaurant. Give to somebody in need outside those doors. Our God is forgiving. Forgive one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Why do we forgive? Because God is forgiven. Why are we merciful? Because God is merciful. And so when you're in the ride and you could destroy somebody else for it, hold your tongue, maybe. In, in, in wrath, remember mercy. God is slow to anger. Guard your tongue. Watch your response. Don't respond to defend yourself. Don't respond in kind. A gentle answer turns away wrath. In wrath, remember mercy. God is, is humble. Jesus humbled himself. He put others before himself. God in the Son stepped down into humanity and humbled himself even to death for us. And so Philippians 2 goes on to say, put others before yourself. Consider others more important than yourself. Sometimes we look for a win-win. I'll win and the other person will win when there's a conflict or a situation. Or we might look for a win-lose. Sorry for you, but I'm going to win on this one and only one of us can. Sometimes we need to instead look for a lose-win. And a lose-win might be I will take the loss so that somebody else can win. I will dive to the bottom of the pile and advance somebody else because I consider someone else and their need more urgent, more compelling, and more important than my own. Jesus came to serve, to give his life for us, and so we serve others instead of expecting others to serve me and to meet my desires and my wishes and cater to what I want, my preferences, my expectations. God is just. That's his image. God is just. God is righteous. And so if God is just, don't cheat on your taxes. Don't use the letter of the law or a rule to get around the spirit of it. God is patient, long-suffering. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep waiting. Continue in hope. God will vindicate you. God is loving. Before you leave here today, Put your arm around somebody. Encourage them. Speak a kind and gracious word to somebody who needs it before you leave this place today because God is loving and so he has called us to love one another because by this will all men know that you are my disciples, he says, because they'll see his image in you. You and I are called to be image bearers. The main thing, is this. Image is everything. The image of God in us is everything. If you are in Christ, like Zacchaeus, you are restored. Everything is different. Just like restoration in Christ restored Zacchaeus to, as an image bearer for God, so you and I, we have, we have been freed in Christ to bear his image. Devoted to God for his higher calling. Don't sell yourself short. Don't settle for less than that. That's what we're called for, for here and into eternity. If you're not restored in Christ, 
You're a fallen bearer of his image. The image still exists in you, and you know of it. It's defaced. It's been marred if it's defaced, but it's not erased. Still there, still present. God's own witness within you. If you're not yet restored in Christ, you can be free, forgiven, restored to that higher calling. That may be while you're he- why you're here today, this morning. Why you brave the early hour after daylight savings in order to be here because you needed to know that you could be restored into what it was that God made you for, to bear his image to his glory for, for your own sake and for the sake of others, not only for now, but into eternity. I hope I get the chance to talk with you even before we leave here today. Talk to somebody else you know that you came with, somebody that you know knows how to be restored to God by faith in Christ. Don't continue resisting what you know about the God who is the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of Zacchaeus, and your God. Would you pray with me? Father, in many ways, ways that are as diverse and multifaceted as the people in this room, in many ways, you would grant us to show your image, to show a family likeness of a loving and merciful and gracious God. Oh, Father, we don't merely ask for an opportunity because the day is full of them. Lord, we ask for a, for a willingness. Father, we ask for a wakefulness. And Father, we also ask for a confidence that we can step into your calling as image bearers because you have us. You will provide for us. You will meet us. You will care for us. You will uphold us. You will vindicate us. I don't need to so guard my life because you have it forever. So Father, in this day, might your image be seen in us as your church, in each one as followers of Christ who trust in him, that we might bring you glory, that we might show others something of your grace so that they might know you too. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name.